Chapter 17 of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter 17. How do ye say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? Horace C. Merrill, Mrs. Tresevant said, reading from a card which a servant had just brought her. Who is he, Carol? He is a young man who attends our church, clerk in one of the stores, I believe, or something of that sort. Well, he is downstairs waiting to see you, and I wish he were in Texas. I'm ready to go to Mrs. Roberts to call, and I presume he will stay an hour. There were special reasons why the minister desired to call on Mrs. Roberts that afternoon, so he answered in no very soothing tone. If it hadn't taken you such an age to dress, Laura, we might have been gone some time ago. Of course it is my fault, Mrs. Tresevant answered, in a tone intended to be suggestive of resigned martyrdom. Things always are my fault, only I should like to know how soon you expect a lady to dress. It is hardly two hours since dinner. There is no necessity for Mr. Merrill spending the afternoon, I presume. Can't you tell him that you have an engagement? No, said Mr. Tresevant coldly. I cannot, for the simple reason that it would not be true. Really, I should like to know why. Haven't you made an engagement with me? Oh, as to that, I have an engagement with you most of the time. I should never be ready to see people if I took such into consideration. With which parting remark Mr. Tresevant descended to the parlor, in no very amiable frame of mind, to meet Mr. Merrill. Perhaps, notwithstanding his attempt to be cordial, something of his feeling crept into his manner. At least the two gentlemen did not get on well together, and after the stereotyped preliminary remarks had been made, conversation flagged miserably. They exhausted the weather, the new boarding-house, the last lecture, given so long ago that it was surprising how they ever wandered back to it. Finally they turned to the weather again, and both insisted that it was a perfect day, that no weather in all the annals of August could have been more lovely, so much pleasanter than yesterday, they both declared, and then both earnestly hoped that it would continue through to-morrow. "'Grand weather for a walk,' Mr. Tresevant said at last, with a desperate disregard of courtesy. "'Mrs. Tresevant and I have arranged for a walk to Mrs. Roberts this afternoon. She has a lovely place, you know.' "'Yes,' Mr. Merrill assented absently, then rousing. "'No, he did not know. He had not the pleasure of Mrs. Roberts' acquaintance.' "'What could be the matter with Mr. Merrill? Under ordinary circumstances?' His fine sense of propriety would have taken the alarm at the very faintest suspicion of a previous engagement. Nay, under ordinary circumstances, he would not have been there at all. Still he stayed unaccountably. Did Mr. Tresevant approve of the last postal regulations? he asked, with as deep an appearance of anxiety as if he had been postmaster general and Mr. Tresevant president of the United States. Very much indeed, that gentleman answered, with very questionable grammar, thinking meantime of the state of mind that his wife was probably indulging at that moment. At last Mr. Merrill seemed to resolve upon coming in some degree to himself, and he said, with visible embarrassment, but yet with more genuine dignity than had before appeared, Mr. Tresevant, I hope I do not take your time from any more important matter this afternoon, but I think I am in need of your assistance. Yes, said Mr. Tresevant hesitatingly, trying to smile, but still thinking of his waiting wife upstairs, thinking also, what a nuisance, he wants some miserable Latin jargon translated, I presume. These aspiring young men are always after things of that sort, 
and they take up time fearfully. Why couldn't he have made his errand known in the first place? Then he waited in unsympathizing silence. Mr. Tresevant, the young man said again, this time with visible brightening of color, I am trying to walk in a new path, and I am somewhat in the dark. I need your help. Utterly misunderstanding him, Mr. Tresevant said, in half-sarcastic pleasantry, That is rather ambiguous language. There are so many paths in this world. If you will enlighten me as to the one to which you refer, I will endeavor to aid you if I can. It is not of this world, Mr. Merrill answered, with great earnestness. I am trying to learn how to follow Christ, and I am making very stumbling work of it. Mr. Tresevant was unutterably astonished. True, he had been praying, morning and evening, in public and in private, for just this thing, that the Lord would bless his truth to the salvation of some soul. But it appeared, from the unbounded amazement with which he received this announcement, that the probability of having his petitions in this regard answered had not once occurred to him. But he was more than astonished. He was thrilled to the very center of his heart full of faults as this man was, many and seemingly endless as were the mistakes that he had made on every side, I yet declare to you that his heart was in the right place, that it thrilled and throbbed with unutterable joy over the blessed surprise. You have before discovered that he was a man who generally acted from impulse. His impulse at this moment led him to rise from his seat, cross to Mr. Merrill's side, grasp his hand, and say eagerly, my dear friend, I cannot tell you what a pleasure it is to hear you say this. How can I help you? And the evident embarrassment which had until this bettered Mr. Merrill shrank away before this exhibition of earnest interest and thankfulness. He spoke promptly and to the point. I hardly know how to explain myself, sir. As I said, I am in the dark. I have always been an intellectual believer in the religion of Jesus Christ, but I never felt my need of a personal salvation, nor the absurdity of my position in not seeking it, until last Sabbath, when my attention was called to the subject. In church? interrupted Mr. Tresevant. Yes, sir, in church. Since that time my mind has been more or less occupied with this theme, and I resolved to begin life anew, but I find it is not so easy a thing as I had supposed. Wherein lies the difficulty? That is more than I know. It is what I am seeking to have explained. As I tell you, I am an intellectual believer. Therefore, the absurdity of my not being more than that became apparent to me as soon as I gave the subject serious thought. I have been reading my Bible and praying at stated times for several days, but, after all, I do not see that I am really any different. I have felt no mysterious change, such as I supposed I should, and I do not find that I have materially different views from what I had before. I am puzzled and disappointed, and I concluded to come to you as the person best calculated to set me right. Now, during this sentence, the demon of Mr. Tresevant's life had come upon him again. He was not in special anxiety about this young man. He recognized in him one not far from the kingdom, perhaps, whether he reached it at once or a few hours later, after some stumblings, did not seem to the clergyman of special importance. At any rate, he left the matter in hand and went back to himself. He had not heard a dozen words of all that Mr. Merrill had been trying to explain to him. His thoughts were very much after this fashion. Last Sabbath at church, I wonder if it were at morning or evening service. It must have been morning, I think. 
That was an intellectual sermon, calculated to impress a person of clear mind, as this young man undoubtedly is. The reason why there are so few conversions at the present day is because the people are such clods that they will not understand or appreciate. If one had people of culture to preach to, how much he might accomplish. I caught this young man anyway, and he is quite a prominent one. I'll take courage, but I must discover, if possible, what particular portion of the sermon impressed him the most. At this point in his thoughts he became aware that Mr. Merrill had ceased talking and was regarding him earnestly. Not being conscious that the young man's words needed an answer, of course they received none. Instead, he said with some eagerness, Do you refer to the morning or evening service as the time when your thoughts were led to this subject? The morning service, Mr. Merrill answered briefly and in disappointed tones. I thought so. I observed you, I think, as a very attentive listener, and the sermon was one calculated to reach a person of intellect. Now may I ask what particular portion of the sermon it was that particularly arrested your attention? You will pardon the question, for we clergymen are obliged to discover, if we can, just when and how our arrows reach the heart, that we may be governed by the knowledge in other cases. Mr. Merrill was visibly embarrassed. He twisted the first finger of his glove into a small cord, and looked ruefully down upon it before he finally answered, I considered your sermon last Sabbath very impressive, sir, and I was deeply interested in it, but I cannot say that it was that which led me to give personal attention to this subject. Oh, said Mr. Tresevant, in great and visible disappointment, would it be allowable for me to inquire what it was, then, that impressed you? The next glove finger underwent the twisting process, but Mr. Merrill answered more promptly than before. It was merely a brief sentence which a member of your congregation addressed to me as we were passing out of church. It had to do with my personal need of the great one thing of which you had been speaking. Poor Mr. Tresevant, don't judge him too harshly when I tell you that he was bitterly, overwhelmingly disappointed. His elaborate sermon, on which he had bestowed nearly a week of patient study and careful writing, had interested this young man indeed. He was kind enough to admit that but it was a chance word spoken by some person as he or she passed out of church that had done the work. He distinctly remembered seeing this gentleman pass down the aisle in conversation with Dell Bronson. He had no difficulty in connecting her with the chance word. He said to himself with unreasoning bitterness that that girl was always crossing his path, coming between him and his legitimate work. For his part, he was tired of her and wished she would go home. What had become of the heart that a few moments before was in the right place? It was there still. He was heartily and sincerely glad that this young man had decided the great question of life. But he wanted, oh, so much, to be the instrument. He felt it as his right. The feeling was not altogether wrong. At least it had its springs from the right source. Sometimes he had reflected sadly over an unfruitful ministry, very rarely blaming himself, it is true, yet there had been times when he had gone about sorrowfully, seeking fruit and finding none, and his heart had been heavy over the barrenness. He had hailed this young man as the first fruits of an incoming season after long waiting, and although it was a joy to know that here was fruit, it was bitter to be made to understand that it was not of his tending. Meantime, he entirely ignored the fact that the soul was not yet garnered, but was groping about wearily in darkness. He almost forgot the presence of the waiting soul, and fell into a moody silence, 
from which he presently aroused himself with a long-drawn sigh and a solemn, "'Well, I am certainly glad to welcome you to our side. We need men, young men especially. Our ranks are comparatively few. I give you joy that you have chosen the right way. You will not regret it.' This sentence sounded so very much like a courteous dismissal that his collar instinctively arose, but remained standing irresolute. He had come searching for light and help. He could not realize that he had received neither. "'Have you a word of instruction for me, sir?' he asked with a sort of eager humility. "'You remember I told you I was in the dark and a great deal bewildered.' Now be it remembered that his pastor had been engaged in a private self-glorification, while the young man had been explaining his position, and therefore must answer in the dark, albeit it was a darkness he did not comprehend. He thought he fully understood the case. "'Oh, I know how it is with young converts,' he said, smiling. "'They want to run before they can walk. "'You need simply to move quietly along the path of duty, "'and bewildering things will grow plain to you in time.' And he, too, had risen, and stood in that attitude of courteous waiting which says, as distinctly as words, "'I perceive, my dear sir, that you are about to depart, "'and I am, therefore, ready to bid you good afternoon.' So Mr. Merrill departed, having received a gentlemanly invitation to call again, whenever his pastor could be of any service. As he went down the shady side of the street, he felt very little, indeed, like a young convert. Indeed, he told himself that he believed he had been a fool for going there at all. What had he gained? Perhaps the whole thing was folly, anyway, and humbug. No, not that, because father was in heaven, and mother was going thither with certain footsteps and besides, that young lady, Miss Bronson, was thoroughly and solemnly in earnest. But it was very bewildering, and he did not know which way to turn. Mr. Tresevant watched him from the door in an absent sort of way, still busy with his own gloomy thoughts, until presently he turned and went very slowly, very reluctantly, upstairs to his waiting wife. Her state of mind had not improved during his absence. She did not even wait for him to close the door before she spoke. I must say, Mr. Tresevant, that you are a remarkably considerate man. Here have I been sitting for nearly an hour with my hat on, ready to go out. What would you have me do? Mr. Tresevant answered coldly. When a gentleman calls to see me, I cannot very well say to him, You must go home, my wife has her hat on, waiting for me. Oh, no, of course you can do nothing but make sport of my inconvenience. It is no sort of consequence how long I am kept waiting. Mr. Tresevant was in no mood to hear unjust censure. His tone was decided in its sharpness. Do, Laura, make use of a little common sense. How on earth can I help it that you have been kept waiting? I certainly am not going to send a gentleman home when he calls to see me, merely because we are ready to make calls, especially when he comes on a particular errand. What was his errand? Mrs. Tresevant questioned, in a somewhat mollified tone, curiosity and the hope of a wedding getting the better of her ill-humor. Is he going to be married? Not that I know of. He is going to try to lead a Christian life. Can't he do that without taking up the whole of your afternoon, I should like to know? This in a woefully fretful, disappointed tone. The pastor of the Regent Street Church paused in his gloomy walk up and down the room, and gave his wife the benefit of a very stern look, as he said in very stern tones, Mrs. Tresevant, do you realize upon what subject you are speaking in such tones of indifference or worse? Richly deserved rebuke, 
but a looker-on could not have helped wondering if the clergyman realized in what spirit he was uttering it. As for the half-awed, half-frightened, thoroughly fretted child-wife, she flung herself among the cushions of the couch, regardless for once of the fair roses blooming on her hat, and burst into tears. End of chapter 17 Recording by Tricia G.